Welcome to another episode of the award-winning radio show and podcast, Dr. Doctor, with your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant, health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. And today's show will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us in this episode will be a phenomenal young pharmacist named Angela Ballman, and she's going to talk about what else but over-the-counter medications. Yeah, over-the-counter medicines, I feel like... You probably get a lot of questions on these. I know I sure do. All the time. It's it's a huge topic. The average U.S. household spends 338 bucks a year on over-the-counter products, and there are some 2.9 billion retail trips to purchase over-the-counter medicine, which comes out to about 26 trips a year per person in America to go purchase these things. And, you know, nearly 7 out of 10 parents have given their child an over-the-counter medicine late at night to try and treat a medical problem Mm -hmm. when they could go see their doctor. So there's a lot of stuff to cover here. I'm really excited about Angela being on to talk about it. I am too. I mean, a lot of our lives are affected by over-the-counter medications, whether seeking them or running from them or trying to understand them. Uh, it's 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 a big part of our life as people, it especially is. of parents of, of young kids. And I thought that there was a lot of over-the-counter medicines, but Chris has got a trivia question that shocked me even. Yeah, today's trivia question, this is a good one for you experts, uh, researchers there. According to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, how many approved over-the-counter medications are there? And it's a multiple choice. A, 50,000, B, 100,000, or C, 300,000. You're gonna have to listen to the end of the show to get the answer to that medical trivia question. So we'll be right back with more on Dr. Doctor. Okay, and we're back with Dr. Doctor, and today our guest, uh, returning to Dr. Doctor, is Dr. Angela Bowman, pharmacist, PharmD. She completed her recent residency in ambulatory care pharmacy and a doctorate of pharmacy at the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy. She currently resides in North Carolina, where she works as a clinical assistant professor at the Fred Wilson School of Pharmacy at High Point University. She has four years of experience working in retail pharmacies and counseling on over-the-counter medications. One of the reasons we were so happy she was going to come on this show and help us sort through it all. She's frequently encountered questions related to the safe and appropriate use of over-the-counter medicines, and she's happy to help us figure it all out today. Angela, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we've got lots of nuts and bolts, and obviously this is a a huge topic. Maybe just to start off, could you help describe for listeners, what's the main difference between an over-the-counter medicine and a prescription medicine? Of course. So any medicine that's sold in the United States is regulated. It just depends how and by whom. So our federal um, Food and Drug Administration, FDA, regulates both these prescriptions and these over-the-counter medications. And really the difference is where they're sold and, like I said, what the regulations are. So over-the-counter is kind of this term. I'm not sure how it developed, but think of the counter as like the pharmacist's counter. And so it's over or beyond the pharmacist's counter. So it's out, very accessible to the public. You don't have to talk to a pharmacist. Uh, this is the difference between behind-the-counter medications where you would, or prescription, of course, where you would, because it would have to be approved by a pharmacist. So we're talking about regulated medications. We're not talking about herbal medications. That could be a whole talk in and of its own self, because that's regulated as a food. This is regulated as a medication. And so these over-the-counter drugs are um, drugs that either became over-the-counter and that was their first approval, or they started as a prescription drug, and then later it was approved as an over-the-counter drug, which is called an, a prescription to OTC switch. Okay. Um, they usually don't go the other way around. We don't start over-the-counter and go to prescription. It's only usually uh, being more cautious, starting as a prescription with more regulations and then going the over-the-counter. Yeah, how, um, but how, does a drug, how does it become over-the-counter, I guess? Is that how drugs start, or does this, I guess, does some of it predate kind of the FDA, that type of thing? It may predate the FDA. I guess I don't know too much more about when the FDA started, but essentially we've had a slow progression of laws governing the use of meds. And the big one that pertains to over-the-counter is the Durham-Humphrey Amendment of 1951. This essentially said, okay, we're going to have two different types of meds. We're going to have prescription and or um, legend is another word for it. We're going to have legend drugs and over-the-counter drugs. We're going to have two different categories. And you can think of over-the-counter as being less, uh, less, Um, less of a safety risk, less of a concern, uh, and less monitoring needed. 
and really appropriate for what we call self-care, which is a patient's guiding their own assessment, diagnosis, and treatment of their own ailments and diseases that are more minor or short-term. So that's just over-the-counter, that law that established that category. And then how it becomes over-the-counter is one of three ways. So we talked about one, it's approved as a prescription, and then there's petitioning and applications for an over-the-counter switch or approval. There is approval through a new drug application or an NDA. So that would just be straight from the drug creation to over-the-counter designation. So the, a new drug application, which is very thorough and, and can take a lot of time. The second, or I think on number three, the third option is to have a drug essentially approved based on its monograph. So every over-the-counter drug comes with a monograph, which has a certain structure. And as long as the drug is meeting those monograph standards based on a drug review by the FDA, it can be approved much faster. So those are the cases of a lot of generic products that we see. Let's say we go to a Kroger pharmacy and they have their own Kroger generic that they use for foods and they apply to medicines. They don't have to go through a whole NDA and do a lot of things like a drug company would. They just have to fit the monograph, meet certain standards, and then their product is much more quickly on the market. So there's essentially three ways to become an over-the-counter drug. So when you say monograph, you mean the same chemical, basically? Well, when I say monograph, I actually refer to the paper document that comes with the drug to specify what it is, how to take it, safety precautions, et cetera. What you're referring to, I think, as the same compound is the same active ingredient. And that's partly what is identified in a monograph. So for example, if I want to go get um, some ibuprofen, I would see the active ingredient ibuprofen and then all the same information that would be expected for any ibuprofen over-the-counter product on the monograph. But that whole process of making sure the active ingredient is the same is a little bit different. That's just a generic uh, approval called an ANDA. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, speaking of generics, a lot of people, I guess for prescription drugs and for over-the-counter medicines, people talk about brand name. Is it really better? Is it really different at all versus the generic? Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the pharmacist take on that? Yeah, this was probably my earliest questions I got when I was a pharmacy student. And so I came up with a fun analogy. We'll see if it, it sticks. I've used it for a couple years. But imagine, you know, you have a chocolate chip cookie. And so a chocolate chip cookie, everyone knows what it is, right? You look at it, you know what it is. It has chocolate chips. If it didn't have chocolate chips, it wouldn't be a chocolate chip cookie. So the essential component are the chocolate chips. So the first person to ever bake like a chocolate chip cookie is the original baker. And since he spent so much time figuring out the recipe, doing it over and over, he probably makes it the best. If you, you know, you might argue that he has the most experience, makes the best tasting chocolate chip cookie, et cetera. But we have the same recipe, right? The active ingredient in this case of the chocolate chip, chocolate chip cookie is the chocolate chips. And the rest is like dough filler to deliver the chocolate chips. So think of that active ingredient as the chocolate chips and all the other fillers as like the dough. And so the manufacturer that first makes that drug is the original baker. And as soon as they make that, they kind of have a hold on it called a patent. And they can't, um, you can't make another chocolate chip cookie like theirs because they, they have the recipe, they made it, they kind of have this hold on it. And then eventually, though, there comes a time where they give away the recipe. Um, in this case, the government makes them, but they give away the recipe. And then someone else just has to make another chocolate chip cookie for a cheaper price. So they still have to have chocolate chips, otherwise it's not a chip, chocolate chip cookie, but they get to decide where the chocolate chip you know, comes from, they get to decide what fillers they use, maybe it's a little bit different, maybe they don't use as much dough, etc. So this is my analogy to say the brand name is that original chocolate chip cookie that the original baker made, and the generic is someone who copied the recipe, kept the active ingredient of chocolate chips, but did their own spin on it. And depending on who you are, you may have a better response to one or the other. You know, in this case, we're talking about medications, which are more necessary, and we're not really looking for taste from medications for most things. So it's a little bit, the algae falls short in some areas, but essentially a cookie's a cookie and it's a dessert. And if it works for you, it works. Why would, why would you pay a lot more for a really expensive cookie when a much cheaper cookie could do the job? And we know how expensive medications can get. So generics have just become this gateway to so much more access for medications because of their their cheaper price. So that's kind of the essence of what I would what I've told patients about. Would, would you generic. encourage folks to to try the generic most of the time or 
for folks who want the best chocolate chip cookie? Do they insist on the brand name for everything? Some do. Some say I will not take anything but the brand and they're willing to pay for it. You know, your body is such an important part of, of your, like your health and, and your life. So I wouldn't begrudge anyone for saying I'd rather try the brand first, but I personally would absolutely recommend the brand, excuse me, I would absolutely recommend the generic over the brand in most cases. And by most cases, I mean like over 95% because they have still, everyone who makes a cookie is held to the same quality standards. You can't use dough that's been sitting out and moldy Someone's going to get in trouble regardless of who it is. Like we still have the same rigorous standards. It's just now we we know what the recipe is. So someone can make a cookie a lot quicker than that original baker who had to make it. So that's the, that's the patent difference and why they give them a hold on it. But regardless, it works really well for most people. They're going to spend less on their meds, making them more likely to take it and able to afford other parts of their health that are also very important that don't involve meds. And except for certain categories of drugs, such as a thyroid drug called levothyroxine, you can you can essentially switch out even different bakers. It doesn't matter because everyone is going to kind of make it work for you. A drug like levothyroxine, a, one baker making the drug versus another would really do it differently, and you could have a lot of different different outcomes. Mm. So in a case of like that kind of drug, I would say stick with the same thing that you've been getting. Don't switch around. And if a brand works for you, it probably will be best to keep it there. Now, you you had made a comment a few moments ago about over-the-counter medicines versus supplements, which are regulated by food, uh, food standards instead yeah. of medicine standards. If I'm a, a patient and I'm wandering through the pharmacy section and the pharmacist is it's closed, how do mm-hmm. I know the difference? Sure. I would say try to look at the products which you know are over-the-counter medications. Most people know that ibuprofen is uh, an over-the-counter medication. It's not like a plant or an herbal. And look at that and look at the packaging because it's very standardized, the packaging, to become an over-the-counter medication. FDA is very cognizant of the fact that information overload happens. People don't always read things. So they revise the label for over-the-counter medications over over time to make it more reader friendly, like most people can read only at a fifth grade level. So they try to make it readable for those that average person. And they have it set up in a structured way. So you'll see that structure in a med that you know is over the counter, and then you'll go to an herbal and it'll be totally different, or they'll have extra information, or they won't have all the information because again, it's regulated differently. So I'm sure if anyone were to look up the label of like ibuprofen or a med, they would see that and they would be like, oh yeah, that looks familiar. <laughs> I've seen that before. Recognize so my, the standardization. Yes, and okay. the structure. Very good. Well, before we kind of launch into the questions about, you know, the specific type of medications, do you have any general safety tips for over-the-counter medicines in general? Um, you know, I don't do. ever do uh, this, that type of thing. <laughs> well, I would... If we had the ability, I would say always ask your pharmacist, uh, but oftentimes, like you said, there are times where the pharmacist is very busy, there's a huge line, we have very short staffing in the community settings um, these days. So that would be my number one tip, always ask your pharmacist. They've had those questions for years and they've had that training. Um, But if that's not an option, I would say always read the label very thoroughly. Like I talked about, it's more readable than it ever has been. So, and it's just in the same order, so if you know a lot about that drug, but you're not totally sure, you can just grab to certain areas that you want to double check on. Read the label, I like that. I would say it's it's not wrong to also ask your, your primary care physician to give you a um, you know a thumbs up, thumbs down about using a certain med. They have the most information likely of anyone on your care team about what conditions you have, what meds you take, and they can kind of quickly screen for an interaction or um, let you know if there's a drug disease interaction. So, but to have that, you know, knowledge, uh, that knowledge there, you have to just be clear about what your conditions are and what your meds are, because it's not always the case that you told your doctor in your appointment. So there's some self, uh, self-responsibility self you have to take there for knowing about your health. Cool. Um, I wish I had more, like, resources, I guess, related to over-the-counter. There's just been so many changes, and I don't think our field has done um, our field meaning pharmacy. I don't think we've created like a database of like counseling or big safety tests yet, but maybe I just haven't discovered it yet. Maybe it's out there. Well, Angela, that is awesome. Thank you for that intro. Let's go ahead and cut off for a break here, and we'll be back to talk about the specifics here on Dr. Doctor. 
Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our continued discussion with Angela Ballman. And have we got a lot of questions for you about specific medications. Um, you know, the, the first one on my list is, it's not flashy, uh, but it's common, and it's Tylenol. So, uh, you know, Angela, Tylenol, perfectly safe. You can take as much as you want anytime you like, right? No big deal. It's just <laughs> Tylenol. Yeah, until it <laughs> until it's not okay, <laughs> until it's a problem. But yeah, it seems pretty benign. But there's some there's some things to look out for. Yeah, it's a little odd or morose, I guess. But the thing I remember the most about Tylenol is, as a third year medical student, I was on the inpatient surgery service, and a college student had tried to commit suicide by overdosing on Tylenol, and uh, they didn't kill themselves, but they killed their liver. Mm. Um, and then they were on the liver transplant list mm. from sort of a suicidal gesture, you might say. Not very serious, but a, a serious implication. But, but that's a good reminder that uh, even a relatively gentle, benign medication like Tylenol, when misused, um, is a huge problem. Um, but what are things that we should be thinking about when it comes to Tylenol? Sure. So it's used, as we all really know, is mainly used for pain, but it's also used for reducing fevers. Sure. Um, oftentimes that's the use uh, in kids is, is bringing down a fever. It, you know, things to know about it. Uh, it's not something that's anti-inflammatory, which is something I think maybe many people might think. We don't quite exactly know how it works, but because it works similarly to anti-inflammatories, we think that it's the same, but it doesn't reduce inflammation mm. to an, an extent that's significant. So maybe up for debate in some circles, but for most people, like they would agree it's not an anti-inflammatory. Um, some things to think about, you know, it's used, you know, every four to six hours, depending on kids or adults, it's, that's generally the dosing regimen, but both kids and adults have a maximum dose, which we don't want to go over. And that's because going over that will lead to um, acute or chronic liver damage. So right. if you take too much all at once, that can lead to that acute in the moment damage. But if you are chronically taking a lot of Tylenol, your liver just can't process it. And the reason we bring up the liver, liver processes a lot of drugs, but this drug specifically yeah. um, goes through the liver primarily. And so it just can't take too much all at once or too much over time. So now, you know, a, you're question, a question that I've gotten through the years particularly if you're seeing maybe college-age students, is alcohol consumption uh, and yeah. taking Tylenol. What should we know and be aware of in that scenario? Sure. So it's kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of how the drug is processed, but when it's processed, it makes some metabolites, and some of those metabolites are free radicals that can cause a lot of damage. And our body naturally has a, a mechanism to combat those free radicals as part of its metabolism process. But those that, that compensatory or that safety mechanism is impaired when it also has to address processing alcohol because alcohol is processed through the liver. Sure. So we have more free radicals, more damage that can go to our hepatocytes or our liver cells, and then we have less uh, less metabolizing going on. And mm -hmm. so we have more just excess Tylenol, excess alcohol, et cetera, just wreaking havoc. So knowing that alcohol makes it tougher to break down Tylenol safe, safely is an important thing. And that's, again, the same with either acute or chronic. If you're drinking, binge drinking, having a lot of alcohol at one time and a lot of Tylenol, just two, two things that are attacking the liver essentially, or if you have lower amounts but higher than you should have over time chronically, again, either could be an issue um, with Tylenol and alcohol. So the, the follow-up question there, I guess, is, you know, I have some folks tell me, well, I never take Tylenol because I don't want to hurt my liver. Um, how much Tylenol is safe? Does any Tylenol cause liver damage? How should folks think about that? That's a good question. Any amount of Tylenol I, uh, let me rephrase that. Even small amounts of Tylenol, the liver can handle. Like our liver is very powerful if it's healthy and it's not wrong to take Tylenol for the occasional fever or pain or something like that. It's even okay to take it chronically if at a low enough dose. I have a, you know, a, a weight-based dosing for kids. To be honest, I don't really feel like we should mention the specific dose because I would always want people to look at the label, consult their pediatrician. Yeah, sure yeah. Maybe you yeah. can comment about that. So a common 2 a.m. phone call I get is, uh, well, how much Tylenol does my baby need? Um, 
it says call your doctor. <laughs> why, why can't they get behind putting out just a little bit of that information on the box? What's the story there? So the FDA will only take so much liability. I'll say that. <laughs> you don't want to be liable for, uh, for too much pediatric, I guess, cases. So the reason for being is because we have a certain age range that we can approve uh, products in. So like we talked about earlier, whenever they submit an application, they say we want to use this drug for 18 and older or kids that are 12 or older or whatever the age is. So I don't think Tylenol is approved less than two years old. I'd have to look exactly at the label. So anything younger than that, if you say my kid is less than two, it'll say call your doctor because you're using off-label yeah, uh, use. See. And the FDA does not want to be liable for that. And the reason they don't give even some guidance is because, again, that's kind of a lead-in for a lawsuit <laughs> saying, well, you kind of gave sure. us an answer and we kind of used it. Well, why didn't you put it more explicitly, et cetera? But, Man, they're relying um, on my 2 a.m. math skills. I'd, well, I'd go for the paperwork if it were me. I don't know. Well, you know, by way of confession, I get a lot of calls at 2 a.m. about that, and I just say call Dr. Malawi. <laughs> <laughs> that probably explains your calls. <laughs> I'm going to have to use that. That is a a tough question, though. Um, But, you know, a little bit of a lead into maybe our next medication, but how do do you feel? I've heard, you know, biased opinions on both sides. What's better at lowering fever, a non-steroidal like Motrin, Advil, one of those, versus Tylenol? Mm, Good question. Do you think one is superior objectively to the other for fever? If I had to vote, I would say Tylenol, uh, just based on the frequency with which I see it recommended. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, because we're not super clear on its mechanism, I feel like it has more fever-reducing potential um, based on what I've seen and what I've been taught. And, and would people, I guess, just one other question about the toxicity. If people of the approved ages are taking it according to the label, um, staying under the maximum dosage, What's the chance of liver problems? Very, very low, very sure. low. Uh, I, I think of cases of the elderly who take this all day, day in and day out because they have osteoarthritis and multiple joints, um, not suffering any negative liver consequences. Their livers are still going. Um, mm. Our body processes things well as long as we meet the certain mm. you know, parameters. Well, we should probably move on to probably the second most popular over-the-counter medication, or at least class of medications, yeah. right? And, that, and it's what I mentioned. It's the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, mm-hmm. NSAIDs, as, as those of us on the inside jargon like to say. Mm-hmm. And those are ibuprofen, naproxen. I'm going to run out of examples. Um, aspirin. Aspirin, sure. It's still around. People forget that regular old aspirin is, is still around. Um, you know, it, it's going to be tough, I guess, to take those maybe as an entire category because a lot. there's there's so many. Maybe if we just sort of directed our comments around ibuprofen or generic Motrin, uh, one that really everybody's probably heard of. Maybe the uh, most common, I it, guess, in, in It feels use. like it, yeah. What what should we know about uh, about ibuprofen or Motrin? Sure. Well, I think first off, know what you can use it for. Mm. So adding to what we talked about with Tylenol, pain and fever, you can also now use this to reduce inflammation. Oh. It essentially is blocking these the, the creation of these chemicals which promote inflammation and pain. So we're blocking the inflammation in that way. And ibuprofen does it um, in a way that is more, I guess, balanced versus aspirin does it in a way that more targets these this platelet creation. And that's why aspirin's more commonly used for like cardiovascular stuff. So just putting that in the side, because it is in the same class, but it does things a little bit more specifically than, than like ibuprofen. Um, and that, but l- along with that um, thought, it still does impair platelets aggregation. So meaning that the platelets are not as prevalent. So with ibuprofen, there's a bleeding risk because of that. We don't have platelets and platelets help us clot. So bleeding risk is a thing, and that's a concern for anybody, especially at high doses, but it's also a concern at normal doses for those who already are on blood thinners and already have a risk of bleeding, mm-hmm. or people who are elderly who might fall, and when they um, you know, have an impact, they're more likely to have like a hematoma or to have a serious bleed uh, externally or internally. So that some of the side effects with the NSAIDs are really concerning, um, but that's th- just just one of them. I think in my practice, the thing just over the years I've heard the most would be GI 
GI issues, GI upset, stomach-related issues, and then I think everyone probably draws a connection with maybe ulcers or yeah. damage mm -hmm. to the stomach and the intestine um, from chronic, I guess, use. Um, but I'll bet in your practice you have to use a lot of nine steroidals, don't you? I, I always wish people would use more. I'll be honest, the, the thing I get the most commonly is, hey, I took a Tylenol this morning and <laughs> then I took an ibuprofen and I still have a fever. And that was only six hours ago. <laughs> I'm like, you know, you're 300 pounds. You're a grown up. <laughs> I mean, this will not, this will not do it. It's not a broken medicine. We need to yeah. adjust the dose appropriately. Mm. That's the the biggest thing I see. I mean, underdosing. Underdosing. You know, there are there are risks, especially if you're on other stuff. I guess you know a good a good question that I get a lot, and I I hear different answers to. What do you tell people about taking Tylenol? And ibuprofen together, yeah, especially right. for for little kids, but also for grownups. Is it is it good to stagger them? Should you take them together? How much? What do you tell people? I tell people to stagger them. I I don't discourage using both if the pain warrants it, and if I really do feel like they would benefit from having both, um, or the or fever, whatever the indication is warrants it. So. If someone hasn't used one drug to the optimal dose, I would recommend that first before going to two. But I do recommend staggering it. So, you know, depending on the interval you're using, let's say you're using something every six hours, uh, that three hour time, middle time stamp, um, let's say you took ibuprofen at hour one, now uh, three hours in, you can take uh, Tylenol and then wait, take ibuprofen and kind of split it that way so you get a consistent um, effect, hopefully, uh, between the two drugs. But um, in terms of like some of the combo products that are out there, combination products uh, over the counter, they'll be just together and then we'll have you take it together, which is fine. It's not wrong. But if you think about it, the drug levels are spiking at the same time. So they're both going to hit a trough or hit a low level at the same time. And you're going to be without relief or pain relief or fever relief. So instead we're having one peak and then another peak. And so it kind of covers less, there's less troughs, there's less, less drops. Mm. Yeah, good point. Well, I mean, moving on to another uh, new mom favorite, or any mom favorite, I think has to be Benadryl. Uh, I know that one is, is big, you know, and I hate to pass up a chance to talk about anything related to pregnancy, but really all three of these come up in pregnancy a all lot. The time. Uh, all the time. You know, we'll say, I've heard us say, the only thing safe to take in pregnancy is Tylenol. And that deserves a little bit of a, you know, a, a little bit of an asterisk beside it, I suppose. We generally don't use Motrin and the non-steroidals in pregnancy, although we'll confuse moms sometimes and recommend them. I know yeah. that that gets complicated. Say, wait a minute. I You've always you, said. <laughs> culturally, we've learned that you're not you're not supposed to do that. It's hard to go back on it. But Benadryl, I hear coming up all the time with uh, with moms of kids. Uh, when to use Benadryl, what's it for, what's it not for? Um, let's talk a bit about Benadryl. Sure, so it's an antihistamine, that's kind of its drug class, and it's non-selective. So we have many histamine receptors and a lot of different things that histamine does in the body. And we have drugs that block a certain histamine receptor and that's it, and then we have drugs that kind of block several and this is a it's one of them that blocks several so because of that some of its uses are broad and then some of its side effects are more severe so it's used for sleep it's used for allergies mild and severe like anaphylaxis life-threatening mm. allergies and then more rare use is nausea so i wonder if maybe some some moms with kids who are struggling with nausea might use this as like a last line after trying other things but um, it does make people drowsy and that's one of the effects that it's used for to first sleep, as we talked about. And um, it also is something that can cause confusion in elderly. And that's a big thing that we, I, I wanted to highlight when, when thinking about this drug mm. is that uh, we really shouldn't be taking it the older we get because it can cause confusion. And that's already a concern um, for development in elderly. So yeah, but people who use it for sleep um, have to be careful because it can build up a tolerance. Mm. Your body can build up a tolerance to it. So you end up just taking more and more Benadryl to, to try and get to sleep. You have more and more side effects and it's not giving you the result that you want. So to prevent that, you can use it for three days straight, but you have to take a day off and kind of give your, your body a break so that the tolerance doesn't develop. Mm. And 
that's the best way to use it for sleep is three days on, one day off, and then repeat. Do you find yourself using it with children, and for what reason? Man, that's that's a great question. I, I think people want to use it a lot because it's there and it's not scary. Right. You know, I, I feel like any kind of prescription stuff is scarier. Um, but, you know, I don't use it as often as I think some people would expect. I mean, one of the things people will talk an awful lot about is, like, allergies. And, and maybe, Angela, you could talk to that because there's other allergy-specific medicines that are antihistamines too. What's what's the difference? When should we choose one of those versus the traditional Benadryl? Mm. Yeah, antihistamines specifically, they grew in their ability to become more selective as we essentially developed the class. So we knew we could block histamine, and then we started with these drugs called like the first generation who just kind of blocked everything. Uh, doxolamine is another one that kind of blocked everything. Then we grew to these, what we call second generation antihistamines. So things like fluoratidine, fexofenadine, which are things like Claritin and Allegra. And those selectively block the histamine receptor responsible for allergy symptoms, which is histamine one receptor. So there's other treatments for allergies, but if we're gonna choose an antihistamine for allergies, the selective are just the best because we're getting at the root of the problem and we're not giving extra side effects and extra issues with blocking several things that shouldn't really be blocked. What, what do you tell people about using Benadryl for kids? Are there any guidelines that you would recommend beyond the m not more than three days in a row? Well, like I said, always check the dose for their age and weight. I think I mentioned that earlier, but if not, I'm going to reiterate. Like you always need to make sure. Um, and it can be used every four hours. So depending on what we're dealing with, again, if it's nausea, that could be a little bit more, more frequent that we're using it for. Um, and then if it's sleep, it would just be once at night. I would say for kids, like kind of like you said, people want to use it for any everything. They're not as worried. I can't see this being needed a lot for kids. Um, and if you have a consistent allergy issue, I would want them to seek out care to get a more specific, uh, a more specific drug. I guess you could say. Um, there's a great drug. Uh, I think it's great for kids. Um, people may not think so, but Singular or Montelukast, um, a lot more safe and not as many side effects. Um, that can be used, especially if they're, they also have concomitant asthma. It's a good one to help combat allergies in that situation. So I don't know, I don't really recommend it a lot for kids, but it just depends. It depends on what they've tried and what they're trying. We, yeah. we talked a little bit about Tylenol could kill you, right? As a, as a side effect, potentially mm -hmm. having too much. Is there a risk of overdose on Benadryl? Yes, uh, over sedation would probably be the biggest risk, uh, just not being able to become conscious to the point where you can seek care or make decisions if you needed help. Confusion, as we mentioned, mm. uh, it can uh, increase heart rate and cause arrhythmias if used too much. And so that would be probably the most severe end and land someone in the ER if they took a lot of Benadryl. But also aside from sedation and confusion, people can have like really dry mouth because it's uh, um, blocking a certain histamine related to the production of mucus. So it's not very comfortable <laughs> to have that. So yeah, it, it can be overdosed on for sure. Yeah. I would say like Tylenol, Benadryl is one of the very common pregnancy, pregnancy sought, you might say, medications. Um, I think in a general sense, people are afraid to use the more advanced or the more uh, the known, the Claritins or, or those in pregnancy because somehow that sounds wrong. Well, grandma um, used Benadryl. Well, yeah, Benadryl's been around and forever. She's doing great. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, she's confused and she's <laughs> sleepy, but her allergies aren't bothering her. She's not complaining. Uh, yeah. But but we, we generally do feel pretty comfortable using Benadryl for, really, for sleep disorder, which is common in pregnancy. Um, but, you know, for seasonal, seasonal allergy problems, uh, Benadryl seems to be on that list of things we're relatively comfortable with. I, I get a question a lot about kids and intentional sedation, especially for like airplane trips would be the, the mm. common thing. What, what do pharmacists say if people ask them about that for <laughs> little kids? Well, I do not have kids, so I can't attest to the difficulty that it would take to take a kid on a plane if they were disruptive. <laughs> but, you know, more exposure to medications at a younger age, I don't think would be recommended unless very much proportionately so like it's it's a it's a big issue and would cause other distress for the kid um, using the med so I it's not you know we, we usually don't 
recommend medications too strongly for behavioral issues um, unless we've tried other things, other strategies? Um, is there something like in the case of someone going on a plane and is there other distractors that we can give? Um, could we have a good sleep routine or something set up to where we could do that? So non, non-medication non or non-pharmacologic first, but they have a little bit to help. I, I guess it's not wrong, but we would want to limit that as much as possible. Whenever my kids are bad in church, I joke that their allergies are flaring up. <laughs> I, I don't really use Benadryl every Sunday, although it occurs to me every Sunday. frequently. <laughs> I think there are two kinds of parents, those that have used it and those that lie about it. <laughs> I, uh, I, um, yeah. Every once in a while, it'll come back and bite you, though, because I'll talk to parents who, they, for whatever reason, they give it, allergies or what whatnot, and then the kid has the opposite reaction. Well, I was going to ask if there's some truth to the opposite. Yeah. Uh, can can it make yeah. some people, can it act as a stimulant uh, in some yes, people? It, yeah, it's called paradoxical excitation. It's more common in kids. It mm-hmm. does happen in adults, though, and it can. Um, so, yeah, things we just still don't know about. We use these meds for years, and we still don't know everything about them. We don't know how that happens, but Turns it does out happen. Turns it's a Tylenol AM for some people, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yeah. You got to be careful. Man, there's so much stuff to go through. I guess um, as we're going through, because we've got so many over-the-counter mm. things to talk about, we're kind of planning to, to cover this over two shows. I want to step back one one moment to the NSAID category. You had mentioned aspirin being different. Yeah. And I think there, there might be a question there, because most of the time when we think of aspirin, at least when I'm talking to folks, it's very generational, and people think of it differently. And if you talk to somebody who might be on Medicare right now, they'll take aspirin for any old thing. The, the I feel a storm coming in. I'm going to go on a car trip. <laughs> I can't sleep. <laughs> allergies. I mean, they love aspirin. They do. Yeah. And uh, younger folks just never think of it. It's the ibuprofen generation. Yeah. When is a good time to take aspirin for something other than blood thinners? For something other than blood thinners? I would say as a last resort. So I'm of that generation, or at least my training taught me that it is an anti-inflammatory, but at very high doses. And those doses also pose an undue risk of bleeding Mm -hmm. that outweighs the benefits you're getting from inflammation um, help, I guess, reduction. So there's these products called like Bayer's, um, well, Bayer's is a brand, but Bayer's powder, like EC or goodie powder, something like that. There's some goodie powder product that I saw a lot um, in my rotations and it's powdered aspirin. So it's going to hit and absorb very quickly. um, And people just take a lot of it. And so it's, it's quick for pain relief because again, it does reduce inflammation at high doses, but it's such a concentrated dose. And I don't think people really realize overuse of that, how high of a risk they're putting themselves at. And like you alluded to earlier, like gastric bleeding and internal bleeding is a thing and Mm. people don't always realize it. Till it's it's a huge problem and it's too late. Um, so how these drugs work is by reducing that hormone I mentioned that promotes inflammation and pain. That same hormone messenger whatever also protects our gut. So for blocking it, we're not getting gut protection, and people don't always realize that. That's why we should always take it with food. Food provides um, a little bit of acid reduction, so we don't have as much of a of a severe environment where if we have a punctured in our you know a puncture in our gut, it gets really touched by acid and then blows up. So take it with food always. I don't recommend aspirin for aches and pains and headaches. Um, and I would recommend ibuprofen beforehand. But you're right, I think it is generational. We just, we thought it was great. and We should put it everywhere and use it for everything. I remember handing it out when I was first a technician for people like it was candy. That's not what we think of anymore. Well, and I know they have baby aspirin too. What's, what's I was going to bring that up. Babies, yeah. yeah you what? know, you're dating yourself because we're not supposed to say baby anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's still mini, in the EMR, right? right? It's mini you know? mini dose uh, aspirin. Right? That's going to be hard to kill. How how did it get that name? And can you clarify for listeners the appropriate babies to take aspirin? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it got it na- got its name. To be honest, they probably taught me that. I, I just forgot. Uh, but you know, a low dose, lower dose, yeah. the adult dose, uh, baby dose. Eighty-one milligrams is what we're referring to when we say baby dose or low dose or mini dose. Eighty-one milligrams. That's the minimum dose needed to induce enough of a platelet antiplatelet response to prevent heart issues. And so that's the dose. Um, and there's a range provided for for those indications, but you that won't touch. In my opinion, it won't really touch a headache. It won't touch most things. Mm-hmm. I was, we're trying to use it for over-the-counter 
that are aside from the heart risk benefits. So, and in terms of, if your question was referring to like what brand should we use, it doesn't matter uh, well, to me, 80 milligrams. <laughs> I've, I've had some folks come to me with a question about it's baby aspirin. So at what age should I give it to children? Mm. And then I always try and bring up, you know, Ray syndrome. Right. Where, it's know, on the test. It's really, yeah. It's one of the few things that we have to, it's going to be on every test. That's right. You're not supposed to give <laughs> aspirin to babies. I know that. Yeah. Right? Well, in my world, it gets confusing in obstetrics because increasingly we're using mini dose aspirin, 81 milligrams as um, as a treatment to prevent blood pressure disorders in pregnancy like preeclampsia, yeah. as well as those who maybe have clotting abnormalities, but we want the pregnant patients to take it. Yeah. But yet culturally, everyone knows in pregnancy you're not supposed to take NSAIDs. Oh, aspirin yeah. is an NSAID. Mm -hmm. So they think we've lost our mind when we say, we want you to take a baby aspirin a day the whole pregnancy. So it's probably a, a plug for you need a conversation with your provider so that you fully understand what they're recommending and why they're recommending it. Um, yeah. It's not a quick, easy thing. Yeah, that's yeah. that brings up a great point that, Angela, you were mentioning about just having a resource. I mean, <laughs> I don't know where the feds are on this one. It seems like there would be a great thing to have a resource for over-the-counter <laughs> medicine, yeah. right? Because right. there are so many of these common-sense things. But I know if you Google, should I take aspirin? I mean, you're going to get all sorts of stuff. I'm not going to be able to make sense of it as a patient. Yeah. Should it? Should I take it or not? You know, you know th this will sound like I'm, uh, I'm playing up to you, Angela, but I find as I get older and I take more medicines, when the person at the pharmacy says, do you have any questions for the pharmacist? I think, you bet I do. Send, <laughs> send them out here. I've got a I've Bring got a, a couple questions. chairs. Yeah. <laughs> because no. I, think, I think probably a pharmacist, you're a little less biased maybe than we are because the side effects that I think about is the last one that I saw. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. opposed to maybe a more broad reading of the literature to understand mm -hmm. possibilities. Um, but, but do you find that patients take that opportunity to, to speak with a pharmacist about potential complications and interactions of over-the-counter versus prescription and the like? I would say most probably don't. Yeah. It's different wherever you go. So I've worked at independent pharmacies, and they are very aggressive in terms of uh, training us to go and talk to people. Like they want to ensure people know, like their, their patients and their clientele know how to use over-the-counter products mm -hmm. safely. But they also have the time and the autonomy to do that, you know, to direct yeah. you to work there. Um, when I worked for more chains, uh, that was not an emphasis. That wasn't on my to-do list of my workflow for the day. Mm -hmm. And patients would have to come and advocate for themselves and ask, can I have your time? I need yeah. this, this uh, product or I have this question. Or if we had um, a medication that we, like a blood thinner that we knew um, was a little bit more risky, we would have um, the ability to counsel at the time of say at the time of sale and say if you take any over the counter products, you should avoid ibuprofen, whatever for this reason, or talk to your doctor before you take it, so on. So, I don't think many people take that opportunity, hmm. and they should. And I wish again we had um, resources funneled to that, similar to independent pharmacies. When I was in pharmacy school, I, I always thought like, hmm, what if I just took two hours every day to just sit out here and watch people? Would people come up and talk to me <laughs> with a sign that says, talk to me about over the counters? Would people take advantage of that? Because some people don't want to ask, they don't want to seem stupid, or they're really just in there to get in and get out and they don't want to hear what you have to think. They just want mm. their um, their Tylenol PM and to fix their problems. So I don't know if it would, if it would change if we had something different. I think it, it might, but I don't know if we'll see that. Man. Yeah, it's it, there is a lot there, and it is so individualized based on what medicines you're taking, what your health history. I mean, one of the things we, I guess, we didn't really talk about with NSAIDs, but also aspirin, is uh, that one has less of a liver concern and more kidneys, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. if somebody's on certain kidney medicines or if they have kidney problems, they might get totally different advice for for that patient in particular. And yeah, that's why I kind of, I kind of. I called back when you said I wish more people would use them. I thought of the kidneys. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. yeah. I Like Chris said, it's always the last call you get. But yeah. the, the most common calls I get, it's an underdosing. They're like, this yeah. stuff doesn't work. I need some Percocets because ibuprofen <laughs> and Tylenol. I took one of each and it didn't work. Give me the perks. I said, no, that's not that's yeah. not the problem at all. we got to do the appropriate dose. So. Well, you alluded to it earlier, this idea that it's not safe just because it's over the counter. Yes. And I, I think part of the 
at least the pure debate around over-the-counter versus prescription is what what could you be treating incorrectly? Yeah. That maybe you're masking something, maybe you're covering up something, maybe your your reflux is actually heart pain and you're taking a reflux medication for it. And and that's a complicated clinical sort of decision-making process that uh, we, we don't want you mistreating yourself accidentally. At the same time, you want to have access to safe things that, yeah. that help common ailments. But it really is a give and take. Um, so why not use the pharmacist's expertise? It's right there and available. Well, and that, you know, as, as we're coming to the end of this first, first of two episodes, I mean, maybe that's a good thought to end on. When is it appropriate for a patient to wing it and, <laughs> and kind of just get stuff over the counter versus when do I actually have to go in and have a conversation? What, what would you say, Angela? Yeah, and I think we talked about this before we started, but we get a whole six months on um, self-care. Maybe not six months. I'm forgetting how long a semester is. <laughs> we get a whole semester on self-care. So that's that notion of of what could we treat by ourselves without involving the health system, if you will, um, and, and is that advantageous? And it absolutely is advantageous to know how to self-care well. Um, every dollar we spend on an over-the-counter product used correctly saves our healthcare system like six or seven dollars, mm. um, and it's a it's a really good um, time and money saver for people. And our healthcare system, as we know, needs help in our efficiency and saving money. So, we we I mean, as pharmacists, we get taught, you know, what is our cutoff for referral? Yeah, like you mentioned, if someone has heartburn, but they've been using the right products for um, a certain given number of days, like a week or two weeks, and it's not better, then it's time to go see their doctor. If it is better, then we try to optimize it for for so for certain things. And you wouldn't know that unless you ask someone. Like I wouldn't know. Oh, it's been two weeks. I should probably go follow up <laughs> this issue. <laughs> I wouldn't know that. I would either do it too soon or too late. Um, so the concept of self care and good self care is important. I, I know that we really get a good education on it. I don't know other specialties, nurse practitioners, PAs, et cetera, but we are there you know, facing the public a lot um, in those community pharmacies. So I think that's why we get a lot of education on it. You know, it's fun to beat up the internet uh, for a lot of things, but I think a positive is there, it's much better access to medication information than there was you know, 10, 15 years ago yeah. um, you know, on your phone. Uh, the general non-medical consumer can really get a lot of information, at least enough to say, maybe you need more. Maybe you need a little higher mm-hmm. level of care. Uh, that doesn't mean we all use it because human nature mm-hmm. is a pesky thing, but but it's available. And it, it wasn't available not too long ago. I love it. Well, that, that might be a good place for us to pause <laughs> for a moment, take a break, head to round two where we're getting into, those are kind of like the big three, but there's so many over-the-counter things we want to be sure to cover. Angela, let's take a pause and we'll have you back on the next episode of Dr. Doctor as well. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And as listeners know, it's time for the answer to this episode's medical trivia question. So again, according to the FDA, how many over-the-counter approved medications are there? A, 50,000, B, 100,000, or C, 300,000? Andrew, what do you think? Uh, I was shocked. I was shocked to, to learn the answer. And as our producer, Andrea, pointed out, this is an estimate from the FDA. The folks Which is another way of saying they don't know. Actually approve all these things. I'm like, don't you keep records on this? <laughs> I mean, good grief. Uh, the answer is 300,000. So choice C, that's a lot of over-the-counter medication. Chris, what did what were your top takeaways from this? You know, this? one is I think uh, Angela's a terrific guest. I mean, she's such a wealth of knowledge. But as I think about the top three takeaways, one of them has to be the importance of reading labels. It's just so simple, and there's so much information, and it's so important. Well, people are always telling me they want to do their own research. That's where you start. That's a good place to start. Unfold it, and again, and again, and again. <laughs> Get a magnifying a big table, glass. Yeah. magnifying glass, lots of time, probably a good cup of coffee. Um, read the labels, yeah, if you're taking the stuff. I mean, there is a due diligence that, that we assume when we're taking over-the-counter medicine, and a lot of the answers are in there, yeah. you know? And so I think Angela said that. I completely agree. You know, the other thing, one of the takeaways I had, she was like, ask your pharmacist. Yeah. And a lot of times, I, I don't know, I feel like at the pharmacy, they say, do you want to talk to the pharmacist? They're scurrying around back there. Just everybody's hair is going crazy. They're so busy. <laughs> I'm like, 
I feel bad bothering them. But she reassured us that they want to help. That's their expertise. You That's know? what they're trained to do. And so they're going to be able to give you the best advice, especially in the moment. And over-the-counter stuff, I think that's a great a great place to start rather than just guessing which of these do I need. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And then the sort of cheap dad side of me wants the third takeaway to be um, don't buy the brand name. Yeah. Buy the pharmacy name or uh, or the, the retail name. Look at the fine print. If it says acetaminophen, that's Tylenol. Yeah. Uh, and and it's going to be a lot less expensive if you get that off-brand name. Yeah. A- Angela clarified that very well for us. So especially, you know, when you're interested in saving money, I think all of us are, you got to start with the generics. Well, as you mentioned, this is the first of two episodes. So listeners, we hope that you'll join us on our next episode coming up soon, uh, where we dive into even more over-the-counter medications. But until then, Thank you for listening, listeners, to another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. You can just click on Episode Archive at the top, and you can find over 300 episodes from days gone by. And as you may know, we now have a video version of our podcast. If you go to our website, drdoctor.org, and you look at the top, there's a YouTube link. Click on that to see the video. You can also leave a question or an idea for an episode. Just click Submit a Question. Until then, I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to our text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.